0: Take a moment to think about the people who have had the greatest impact on your life. Did a teacher or a neighbor take a special interest in you? Or maybe a boss challenged you to be better and to do more? And maybe you had a friend who believed in you when no one else did. Peers and mentors have a massive impact on who we are and even whether or not we succeed. Today, on the 201st episode of the Copywriter Club podcast, we're talking with A-lister and direct response copywriter Paris Lampropoulos, who just might be the best copywriter in the world today, all about his mentors and what he learned from each of them.
1: But before we dig deeper into this conversation, this episode is brought to you by the Copywriter Accelerator, our 16-week program for New copywriters who want to build a strong foundation for their business success. It covers business mindset, niching, packages and pricing, processes, client management, and even branding and getting in front of the right clients so you can be set up to succeed. If you're ready to stop dabbling and get serious about your copywriting business or pivot your copywriting business, Go to the copywriteraccelerator.com for more details.
0: We first met Paris Nonpropolis at Copy Chief Live in 2017. And I knew that he was one of the best copywriters in the world. So uh, I hate to admit this, but I was a bit intimidated by him. And it's silly to say that because Paris has got to be one of the nicest guys I've ever met. So when I met him, I think I maybe just said hi and shook his hand and then kind of slinked away into the background. But a few months later, when we were planning the first ever Copywriter Club in real life, he emailed us and asked why we had invited all of his friends to the event, but hadn't asked him to come. So of course, we immediately fixed that and we invited him to speak. His presentation at that event was about how he had landed his first clients and then doubled his income every year. For four years in a row. And if you start doing the math on that, it's pretty incredible. We recorded it and it's available to watch in the Copywriter Underground private membership. Paris also spoke at TCC IRL the next year. He walked through one of his controls, almost line by line, explaining why he chose the words that he used, what he was trying to do with each sentence, what the images meant, even some of the punctuation. It was a masterclass on direct response copywriting. After his presentation, I was talking with him and I asked him if he'd be interested in guesting on the podcast. And he told me that he wasn't really interested in doing more podcasts. Then he stopped and he said, actually, I'd like to talk about some of my mentors. Maybe we could do something with that. And here we are a year later, finally ready to have that discussion.
1: It was an honor to include Paris at our event both years in New York City. Not only was he there to speak, but we also caught him scribbling notes asking lots of questions, and learning from fellow copywriters. If you don't know Paris yet, uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about him. He really is the rare copywriter who doesn't need to advertise his services. In fact, he doesn't even have a website because anyone who wants to work with him will jump through hoops to find him. He's written dozens of winning controls that have brought in millions of dollars for his clients. And he runs probably the most exclusive copywriter training program that I've jokingly invited myself into during this interview. We're thrilled that he took the time to share his thoughts about some of the most influential people in his life. So Paris, let's talk about mentorship and your mentors and how they played such a big part in you becoming a copywriter
2: well it is and it's a big part of everything if i look at everything i'm good at in my life in every single instance there was a mentor a good mentor behind it and if i look at everything i'm lousy at it was in areas where i either had no mentor or i had a lousy mentor
0: so can we yeah can we get into some examples of that give us uh, maybe no, a good and a bad not.
2: <laughs> oh, a bad. Oh, God. I don't want to I don't want to say anything bad about people. But let's just say, you know, wh- it, it, you follow somebody. If Here's what I tell um, like newbie copywriters or even not so newbie. I say um, if you learn from a copywriter who's making fifty thousand dollars a year writing copy, guess what you're going to learn how to do. You're going to learn how to make $50,000 a year writing copy. But if you learn from somebody who's making a million dollars a year writing copy, well, there's a pretty good chance you're going to learn how to make a million dollars a year. Let me ask you this. The guy who's making 50000 a year, and when I say guy, it could be a guy or a gal. The person who's making 50000 a year, do you think they are approaching it the same way as the person who's making a million a year? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so you got to learn from the best. And, you know, copywriting, I was very lucky in that I had some of the best people in the world who I got to learn from. And that's what I want to talk about today because these guys and gals are amazing and I learned so much from them. And it, it helped me become the person I am today.
1: Yeah, so can we start with maybe the mentor who had the biggest impact in your career early on, in the earlier days in copywriting?
2: Well, the very first was Gary Halbert. And anyone who's of my generation, you would be hard-pressed to find someone who wasn't influenced by Gary Halbert in some way, shape, or form. At Gary's uh, memorial, I wrote a eulogy where I said, all roads lead to Halbert. Um, And so what happened was at the time I was in real estate, I was selling real estate in Manhattan. And and I think I've told you guys this story before, but um, I became sales manager of this real estate company. And this was during one of the real estate crashes when, you know, the, the market had tanked. People were upside down and couldn't sell their homes. Real estate offices were closing their doors and um, the the sales manager at the office where I was quit. And um, he actually the last thing he did, his last official act as sales manager was he put his fist through the window of his 16th floor office and stormed out of there. And there was like a trail of blood from leaving his office, through the bullpen area, past the reception, out into the elevator. And I'm watching this and I look at my boss and I go, "Uh, I'll be the sales manager. (laughs)
0: That's a good omen.
2: Looked at me like because I was like the youngest person in the place. People there had been selling real estate when I was still in diapers. And here I am like, oh, I'll be the sales manager. And he looks at me like I have two heads. And I go, hey, man, look, you don't you don't have to pay me uh, a salary. I'll just take an override and I'll still do my deals and all this and that. So, you know, he's by at that point. He's like, well, what how much worse can get things get? So he says, sure, have at it. And so I decided that I wanted to learn marketing. Because even back then, when I was a total ignoramus and knew nothing about marketing or advertising, I had a, a, a notion that perhaps that would help the company. If I learned how to market. We could get hire, attract better listings and better agents and all that kind of stuff. And no sooner had I put that thought out there than I went to my mailbox one day. I don't know if you guys know what a mailbox is. It's this thing where they Put letters in like this guy in a uniform comes and he puts these letters in your thing and then you open them and read them. Yep. And I opened my mailbox and there's a sales letter and it says how to get people to line up and beg you to give take their money. (laughs) I'm like, wow, this sounds pretty interesting, and it sucked me in, and it was a sales letter for the Gary Halbert letter, and I just it pushed my buttons so bad I had to have this. So I subscribed, and I got this uh, book in the mail that you get as a free premium for subscribing. And It was called How to Make Maximum Money in Minimum Time. And it was basically a collection of back issues of this newsletter, and it had all these mind-blowing articles in there. And one of them was how to get a product to sell if you don't have one and how to get it for free. And basically the idea behind it was you can write, special reports you can write informational products and sell them through mail order and make money and so i said oh what a great idea i'm going to uh write a book on how to sell your home in a declining market because i knew how to do that like i wasn't good at actually getting listings but once i got them i was good at selling them so i wrote a book i wrote a sales letter and that's basically what got me started in this business and i learned a lot from gary Uh, And I never see you don't have to necessarily become really close to your mentors. Sometimes you can learn from afar. Right. So I subscribed to Gary's newsletter. I went to his seminars. I bought his courses, never got super friendly with the guy. I, you know, I maybe spoke to him on the phone um, Mm -hmm. maybe three times in my life. I met him at some events, you know, and stuff. But we weren't like super close. But he still had a tremendous, tremendous impact on me.
0: Were there specific things from I, – I mean, I, I know you had that letter uh, and it sort of pushed you into uh, a copywriting role eventually. But were there specific things that Gary was teaching that you look back and you're like, okay, these are, these are like definitely definite halbertisms that I still use today?
2: Yes. So the first thing he taught me was don't make it look like junk mail. So people back then, you know, you'd get these envelopes and they'd be four color and they'd have teaser copy and all this kind of thing. And Gary said, look, man, what if your life depended on the success of this letter? What if somebody had a gun pointed at your head and they said, you're going to write a letter and you're going to mail it to one human being and that human being has to buy it And if he doesn't, we're going to blow your brains out. If that were if if that was the scenario, would you send out this four color thing screaming with teaser copy on it? Pure your life. Yeah, I think I'd send out a,
0: a personalized invitation or, or something. Yeah.
2: So that was his big thing that took him from being broke to becoming successful because um, he was, you know, a lot of us have the same story. Like he actually had his utilities turned off because he didn't have money to pay the electric bill, you know. And then he came up with this breakthrough that that I just mentioned. He called it the amazing direct mail secret of a desperate nerd from Ohio, right? And that was the idea. He said, uh, people sort their mail over a waste paper basket. And so there's the A pile, which is bills and personal correspondence, you know, letter from your Aunt Millie, important stuff. And then there's junk, which gets tossed, right? And you want to be in the a pile so when he would do a mailing he would have a plain white envelope number 10 envelope he would have either a handwritten or typewritten address on it he would have a live postage stamp it looked personal and so you get your letter opened getting your letter opened is a big deal most of them do not get opened; they get tossed when a person opens a letter They have just made a micro-commitment, and they are now down that slippery slide. I'm sure you guys are familiar with the book Influence by Robert Cialdini. When he talks about how American prisoners of war during the Korean War, how the the North Koreans uh, brainwashed them, it's the consistency principle. You start off with something small look, we're going to have you write a little essay that says America's not perfect. Sure, surely you can agree that America's not perfect, right? And they'd be like, oh, we'll give you cigarettes. Oh, okay. Well, guess what? Once you've started down that path, you're just, you know, you're down that slippery slope. And so that's that's an example of the consistency principle being used for evil, but we can use it in our marketing and sales letters for good. So. There's not a whole lot of people uh, probably on this call doing direct mail, but everything that I'm going to talk about today, it all applies to today's environment. It applies to email marketing, Facebook, you name it, right? So, what would be today's uh, equivalent of opening a, a, a letter?
0: Yeah, it's going to be email.
2: Uh, right. right. Well, you click on the email. Boom! You've just made a micro commitment. So, if you think in those terms. If you want a subject line that if somebody were pointing a gun at your head and they they didn't open your email, you would blow your brains out. What would you do? You would really work hard to have a good subject line, right? And you wouldn't make it sound like advertising. So uh, that I learned about first from Gary Halbert. And later on, it was further reinforced by Gary Benzavanga. The two Garys. They're sort of like bookends in my in my life, you know uh two of the biggest influences on me, so that was one important lesson Halbert taught me. another thing was um the importance of theater make things exciting, put some juice into them there's so much people get that get stuff get in the mail that's boring. John Carlton was like one of Gary's best friends, and he's a good friend of mine. And, you know, I've learned a lot from him, too, just from hanging out with him. And he says, make your ad or sales letter or whatever it is be the most exciting thing that happens to them that day. Most people have boring lives. They don't get to do a lot of fun stuff. They don't, you know, they just, who was it, Emerson, one of those guys, people live lives of quiet desperation, right? That's your prospect for the most part. You got to bring some juice into into their life, right? You got, or Joe Polish says people want less uh, and more. Uh, you know, <laughs> put some more uh, into their life. You know, so that was another thing I learned from Gary, and then another thing I learned from him was he actually had a um, an issue of the newsletter where he said. People ask me, Gary, if I had to get really good at copywriting really fast, what would you recommend? And he said, this is what you do. And he gave a reading list of the top 10 books. So guess what I did? You probably read the books. You must be like a mind reader or something. Yeah, I'm pretty good at that. (laughs) And so when I stopped down that time at your first copywriter uh, club in real life in, uh, where was
1: Chinatown. It? it was in China- Chinatown. Oh,
2: that yeah. was fun. That was a fun. That was fun. Yeah. Uh, I decided to give, that was a big part of my talk, right? I said, here's your reading list. And I make my copywriters read each of those books three times. The first time you read it, you just read it like it's pleasure reading. You take it to the beach with you. The second time you read it, you yellow highlight stuff. The third time you go through and you take notes on the yellow highlight. Does that sound like a lot of work?
0: That sounds like a ton of work for most people. It is
2: a ton of work. Guess what? If it were easy, everybody would be doing it. So, but you do that by the third reading, you you know those books called. And then we'll, after that, we have a discussion. So, you know, you guys could form a book club. You guys who are listening to this uh, podcast, get some buddies, form a book club, read the top books, read Caples, read Hopkins, read Schwab, read Cialdini right? Read Gene Schwartz. Um, There's no better way to get good fast. I mean, and it's such a minimal investment. Like you don't have to go to, you don't have to buy a $500 copyrighted course or a $5,000 seminar. I mean, yeah, they're good and you should do them ultimately. But in the beginning, you know, you, you could buy a $15 book and learn a lot from that $15 book.
1: Yeah. I love that idea.
0: Let's stop for a minute so that we can note that we have shared the list that Paris shared with us on the Copywriter Club website. So we'll link to it here in the show notes as well. But if you're driving and you can't stop to click that link right now, or you just want to know where you can find that list, you can find it at thecopywriterclub.com forward slash Paris dash book dash list. And that's Paris with two R's.
1: And we've taken Paris's suggestion to form a book club and read all of those highly recommended books in the Copywriter Underground, our private membership. So if you want to go through each of the 14 copywriting books that Paris says are the most important, you can do it with us in the Underground. So Rob, what has resonated with you the most from our conversation so far with Paris?
0: So, yeah, up till this point, the thing that really stands out to me is how Paris found Gary Halbert. And it wasn't because he had a website or a sales letter or he was running Facebook ads or, you know, making promises about becoming the greatest copywriter ever. He actually made a better promise and was found in another way, you know, all about how to get people to line up to give you money. That's exactly what Paris needed at the time. He didn't need marketing skills necessarily. He needed money. Uh, Although he did need the marketing skills, but the real felt need was money. So that was the promise. And Gary was writing mind-blowing content that you really had to respond to. He was practicing what Paris says about being interesting above all else.
1: Yeah, something else that really stood out to me is talking about micro commitments, especially when you think about direct mail and sending um, envelopes and mails to your customers and getting them to open the mail and want to read it and interested in what's inside of it and creating that micro commitment, um, it just simplifies the way I think about marketing today because it's so easy to feel overwhelmed, especially if you're working on a big launch or a big campaign and you're thinking about the end goal and it feels, at least to me, daunting to get there. But when I break it down to micro commitments and getting someone to open an email um, getting someone to read an email, getting someone to respond to an email, it just it feels so much easier for me to handle. So that was really helpful. And then even just thinking about the micro-commitment of subject lines and getting people to open more emails, um, you know, Paris talked about how if you're well, I think he was talking about if your life depended on it, but if your mom's life depended on it and you had to write a subject line that would get someone to open that email – you would try a lot harder to write a uh, attention-grabbing subject line that would work. And so it's just a good reminder to me because I'll oftentimes rush through that. And so just taking a little bit more time uh, to, to create more urgency around it and more importance in those micro commitments.
0: Yeah, I wonder how our copy would change if we had to have a winner, you know, in order to save a life every single time we sat down to write. My guess is we'd work a lot harder At all of this stuff. So let's jump back into the interview where we left off and see what else Paris has to say about that.
1: Paris, can we back up to the second point that you shared about uh, theater and making your ad the most exciting part of the day that, you know, I feel like copywriters that are listening are going to say, yeah, that makes sense. But how, how do we do that? How do we get better at that? Especially newer copywriters, can you break that down?
2: Number one, just look at what's outrageous that's out there and sort of, if you do it enough, you start to get a feel for it, like publicity stunts. You know what's a great book is Trust Me, I'm Lying by um, Ryan Holiday. If you read Claude Hopkins back in the early 1900s, his book, uh, Scientific Advertising, My Life in Advertising, he talks about stuff like that. He was writing sales copy for a flower Company, you know, flour, baking flour, and he baked the world's largest cake, right? Like the Guinness Book of World Records largest cake, and he toured the country with it, right? So that's one way of, of doing it. If you if you uh just look at all the various examples, you'll start to see kind you'll start to get a feel for that. Another way is to study the copy of writers who naturally write that way. So John Carlton's a great example. Are you guys familiar with his ad with the headline, The Amazing Secret of a One-Legged Golfer? That thing ran in the golf magazines. I don't even know how many. I mean, it's insane when you think about it, because if you're getting a magazine and you're you're seeing that ad in the magazine every month, you think sooner or later, it's going to stop pulling, right? That thing ran for years. I mean, that's seven, eight, 10 years, something crazy like that, right? So John's great with that stuff is, um, you know, really theatrical, dramatic stuff. Lots of lots of emotional wallop. Um, So that's another thing. And the other thing is just when you're doing your research, just look Be on the lookout for things that make me make you tingle when you're reading it. Right. Uh, And. One thing I do is a I a list that I call, I didn't know that, dot, dot, dot. And as I'm going through my research, I'll be, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> and it goes on the list. And by the time you're done, you've got like a whole list of I didn't know that.
0: That seems like that's going to be a list for fascinations.
2: Yeah, it's going to be fascinations, headlines, or even stuff you reveal in your sales copy, right? Because we want to reveal stuff in the copy that's really cool and wow you know forehead slappers stuff that makes them go wow this is so cool and it creates a dopamine dump in their brain
1: right
2: (laughs) and so they keep reading and also it creates reciprocity they wow look at all this cool stuff this person told me imagine how much more i'll learn if i you know buy the guy's stuff and get into a relationship with this person a business relationship where i'm where i'm a customer right So very often the stuff that makes you tingle is going to be stuff that's counterintuitive, right? Yes. Yes. And there's a great book called Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. They tell you how to write stuff that wows people. And it's a formula. I think the acronym they use is success. And one of the C's stands for counterintuitive. Right. Yeah. That would be my advice for how to, how to Put more juice and more theater into your writing.
0: Okay, and then so that that's some some of the takeaways that you had from Gary Halbert. Who was your next mentor?
2: My next mentor was Ted Nicholas, and I learned about Ted through Gary. So you know how uh, John brought Paul into the band, and then Paul brought in George, and George brought in Ringo. Kind of works that way in real life with with people you meet, right? (laughs) Um, So Gary said, Ted Nicholas is holding a seminar and you'd be crazy not to go. So I went. And Ted was very different from Gary uh, in, in a lot of ways. Like Gary was just outrageous. He was just this crazy lunatic. And Ted was just like, you know, kind of a serious guy. I mean, I don't want to say he didn't have a sense of humor because he had a great sense of humor, but he wasn't off the wall. He was like just kind of a normal guy. And he was almost in some ways like a surrogate father to me because he was the same age as my father. He was Greek, just like my father. Um, They were both had a lot of similarities, hardworking and, you know, started their uh, own business and all that. But Ted was, my father was like a tough guy, like a very quiet kind of, I, like in his entire life, I never saw him cry, right? But Ted, Ted was also a tough guy. Ted was a former Marine, and yet Ted wasn't afraid to show his vulnerable side. And he kind of taught me that it's okay. You, you know, just because you're you can still be a man and a masculine man and show some vulnerability, so that that's a life lesson I learned from Ted, not just a copywriting lesson, and another life lesson I learned was about the importance of listening. He said most people, when they're in a conversation, they're not really listening to the other person they're while the other person's talking. They're thinking, ooh, what am I going to say next, right? And that really stuck with me. It had a very big impact on me, and it I really, um, you know, I made it a point to learn how to become a good listener. And when you're a good listener, it helps you just be a better person and have better relationships in your life. But it also makes you a better copywriter because where are you going to get your ideas from? You're going to get them by listening. Right. Interview the client, interview the guru. So that was a big lesson I learned from Ted. Another one was he would take notes on index cards and he he would put different sections on different index cards. And now you can put those cards on the floor and you can start arranging them in different orders and figure out what the best order is, and then that becomes the skeleton for your sales letter, and and it almost writes itself because you have an outline, right? But you don't know what the outline is going to be until you start playing around with it. Now, this was back in the dark ages when people used to actually write notes on index cards with pen and, you know, take a pen and write it on a literal index card. But I still do the same thing today. I just create a big Word document with all my research. As I'm researching, I'll copy and paste things into the Word document. I'll write the source underneath where I got it from, give a study or whatever website or wherever I found it. And then above it, I'll usually put like a little hint, like, oh, uh, let's say I'm writing a financial promotion for a financial newsletter. Oh, this, this note here has to do with the, the guru's methodology for picking stocks. Or this note here has to do with um, his track record. Or this note here has to do with what I call a soapbox when he gets on his soapbox and starts, you know, railing against whatever you're against. Right. The common enemy or whatever it is. Right. Big government, whatever the heck it is. And so I'll end up with a um, really lengthy document with all these blocks of copy with little headings. And then at the end, I'll actually print it out and cut it with paper and scissors and do the same thing Ted did. You start laying them out on the floor and start putting them in different piles. And now you've got all the things that are the same in different piles. And again, you just assemble the copy. You're not writing copies so much as assembling, which is something I also learned from Bill Bonner. Um, And uh, yeah, so that was a big lesson from Ted. And then one of the lessons he's most famous for is the idea of the, the hidden benefit. So an example is he wrote a copy for a public speaking course. And his headline was how to get something applause, even a standing ovation, every time you speak. Now, nowhere in the course materials did it tell you that you're going to get a standing ovation, Right. But Ted realized that that was the hot button that was going to get people to buy. And the way he realized it was he, he asks this question. And to this day, I always, I still do this. I always ask this question. If I had unlimited godlike powers, what benefit would I bestow on my audience?
0: I want to jump in here for a second and talk about the idea of the hidden benefit because it is a real secret to successful copy. Uh, almost nobody talks about this so nobody buys you know a maserati or a porsche because they need to drive to work or they need to drive to the store they buy it because it's a way to flaunt their wealth or it's a way to show the world that they have something that no one else does or maybe they feel the need to go really fast so there's this hidden benefit that goes way beyond the obvious benefit of driving somewhere and it's not just luxury items that have hidden benefits you know, keeping with this kind of corny car theme, even lower priced vehicles like say Jeeps or Teslas or minivans have a hidden benefit that appeals to a particular kind of consumer. If they just need a ride to the store, they'd all buy the cheapest vehicle uh, or they choose the plainest color and the plainest styling. And, but none of us do that. We're also considering the hidden benefits, the things that our purchases say about us, even if that consideration is totally subconscious. And we don't realize that we're doing it. And the only way to discover that hidden benefit is by listening to the customer and really digging into what they think, what they feel, what they fear, and what they hope for. And like I said, it's true of everything that we buy. There's a rational reason to buy as well as the hidden benefits. And for virtually all of us, the hidden benefits are far more important in our buying decisions.
1: So Rob, what type of car did you buy and why did you, what was the hidden benefit behind that car purchase?
0: Yeah. Well, I don't even know if I can say what the hidden benefit is, but I like gravitate towards Jeeps. Uh, You know, I have a 25 year old Jeep that I drive right now that my kids all want to drive to, you know, as soon as they get their license or whatever. So I I don't know. I like four wheel drives and that kind of a car. I'm not sure what I'm trying to say about myself, but I'm sure there's something (laughs) subconscious going on there. Uh, I will say this: I have zero desire to drive a sports car. You know, I, I mean, maybe out on a track once or twice just to you know get the feel for it, but that, it doesn't say the things about me that I want to say about me. So, how about you? What, what, like you? Would you drive a, <laughs> a Jeep or a Maserati?
1: <laughs> it's a no car car, so no car. I don't know what that says about me. I'm not a huge car person, although. I think it could be fun to be a car person at some point. My dad is a car person and obsesses over cars. Uh, But I will say, like, I think a Tesla would be really cool at some point. So, um, again, we should analyze this at some point, Rob, and see what this means about both of us.
0: Maybe all of our buying behavior, uh, all of the products (laughs) we're attracted to.
1: Right. That's another episode, too. Uh, okay. So, you know, what else stood out to me with Paris talking through this is just the concept of assembling copy and not writing copy. And that really hit home for me because again, sometimes we all know it it can be daunting to look at the blank page and feel like you have to put together, craft something brilliant. And so just the idea of like, I don't have to write this. I just need to assemble it. And It's not permanent. I can move ideas around. It just, it's so much easier for me to grasp that concept and to start to play around with that concept a bit more, whether it's with note cards, which I don't, I'm not really into handwriting note cards, but printing it out like Paris does, typing it and then printing out cards and rearranging it that way could be really cool. It's also something that Elizabeth Gilbert talks about in her own writing process too, that she actually will handwrite Uh, different index cards to assemble her research and her books too so it's just something that I'm thinking about in terms of writing sales copy but also you know if you want to write a book how do you how do you systematize and assemble all the concepts in a book that you're writing so that was really cool for me
0: maybe we should try to get Elizabeth Gilbert on the podcast to talk about her system
1: we could do that. That's, make that happen. That's a, I'm on it. I'm up yeah, anyway, we'll we'll work on that if anyone has a connection. Hook us up.
0: Yeah, so let's get back to uh, talking with Paris.
1: So can we go back to the vulnerability piece and that lesson from Ted? How I know you mentioned that plays into relationships and strengthens relationships. How did it play into your copy and the way that you were writing copy at the time? How did your copy change from that aha moment in that lesson?
2: I think it, it changed in that I was more in tune with, with the inner life of the people I was writing to. Because when you start being vulnerable and authentic, I hate that word authentic, by the way. It's like so, so overused these days, right? But you know, and you're being real. That's another that's another word people use today. I'm being real. Um you uh you know, you you, you drop you you see behind the mask. When you let down your own mask and get in touch with your own, um you know, head trash or emotional issues, all that kind of stuff. And now you can more easily see it in others and you get a better understanding of humanity and you can write to them knowing all this stuff, right? You can influence them better. So I gave this talk where I talk about how we all carry around our childhood injuries with us. And if you understand that on a deep level, you can influence people in ways that you never imagined. Right. We're all like wounded children walking around in adult bodies. And so that's the difference between surface level copy and copy that really gets to people where they feel like, oh, my God, this person really gets me. Right. If people feel understood, you can screw up your copy 10 different ways and still they'll still buy from you. Let me ask you a question. Um, Think back. I want both of you to think about the best gift you ever received from somebody, like Christmas gift, a birthday gift, something like that, right?
1: Oh, my goodness. Okay.
2: Okay. So think about that. Get a picture of it. And everybody listening, I want you to do the same thing. Think about the best gift anybody ever bought you or gave you. Got it. All right. I'm going to say the best gift you ever got was not a gift where you said, wow, this is great. I could really use one of these. It was a gift where you said, wow. This person really gets me. So you want to totally get people. That's the name of the game.
1: Okay. Well, I also want to hear, <laughs> Rob, what was your gift? I want to hear what your gift was.
0: So uh, I can't remember. I think it was a Father's Day. My wife had taken like 90 days. She took a, an index card and she wrote down one thing that she appreciated about me every oh one goodness. of those 90 days. Oh, wow. And then she gave the, the set to me. It was, it was awesome. I still have it actually. It's like sitting here in my desk drawer because I mean, I I probably couldn't tell you what I got for Christmas, you know, four months ago from anybody, but this gift that I got, I I don't know, it's probably been 10 or 15 years ago. I still have it sitting here. So yeah, that it's, it's very personal. Yeah. Very personal, very meaningful. And you're right. It, it was one of those things like, wow, um, she cares. Right. That's a
2: great story. Imagine if every couple did that. (laughs) Like, <laughs> yeah, no <more> divorce, right?
1: <laughs> save, yeah save our world um save our marriages yeah
0: so what what was your gift Kara? because you, you can't yeah what was
1: the Well, i was just went with the first gift that came to mind from when i was a kid it was a dollhouse the dollhouse i would assemble with my my dad and that i fell in love with and built over years and now it's sitting downstairs and my of course my daughter had, wants nothing to do with it but um yeah, that was meaningful t- to me um, and came to mind first. But I should think about the more recent gifts too. I'll still think about that one. It hasn't been 90 days of thoughtful notes for <laughs> wow. my husband.
0: There's an idea. There's an idea for me I'll you share that with him. Yeah, yeah, really.
1: Going back to the listening part too, becoming a better listener is hard uh, for many of us. And I feel like the problem oftentimes is that we think we're a good listener, but we're not. So how do we become better listeners when half of us think that we're already decent at it? Even as copywriters, we think we're okay, but how do we get better? And maybe we are okay, but how do we continue to, to get better at it? It seems simple, but I know so many of us struggle with it.
2: I'm sorry, Kira, Did you say something? I wasn't listening. Yeah,
0: really busy doing something else.
2: So. I was
1: waiting for that. I was waiting. <laughs> for I'm that.
2: Seeing, getting too predictable with my jokes. Huh? <laughs> um, I think the the answer is like stop and pause, and just train yourself to pause and have the space open, and to realize that people don't care about you being interesting. They care about you being injured, hmm. right? Yeah. So let's say for for just for the sake of an argument, let's say you're just a selfish jerk, right? <laughs> you don't yeah. really care about what. Who oh, no, knows? Stop! Come on, you're the opposite of that. But let's say you were, and you don't really care what the other people have to say, right? Even even if you're totally selfish, purely for selfish reasons. Being a good listener is going to get you places. so learn to be a good listener. And again, it's just a matter of pausing yourself, stopping yourself, looking at the person in the eye, and just saying, "What can I learn from this person?"
0: Okay, so um, there are more mentors that you've learned from. Oh, uh, yeah. who else who else comes next in the line of mentors?
2: Yes We're going chronologically, right? So well, I learned from Halbert. I learned from Ted Nicholas. I started writing copies. Started making some money on it. And um, there was a fellow named John Finn who was a copywriter's agent, believe it or not. And I, again, I found out about Don Finn through Gary Halbert. Right? Gary had had this seminar uh, called the Seminar of the Century, and I had the tapes and the transcripts and. One of the speakers was a copywriter's agent named John Finn. So I contacted him. I said, hey, man, uh, I'm a copywriter. Can you get me some work? And he said, well, send me 10 pages of your best copy. And I said, okay. I sent it to him. Got back a little later. He said, yeah, you're pretty good. I could get you some gigs. So one of the first uh, people he hooked me up with was this guy who is um, no longer with us. His name was Buddy Hayden. And he was the head of a division of this financial newsletter company you may have heard of called Agora Publishing. And back then, Agora was this sort of upstart company. They weren't the giant, the 800-pound gorilla that they are today. And this is like the craziest thing. But when I would write copy for Buddy, the people who would copy Chief, my copy, were Bill Bonner and Mark Ford, can you imagine i for those i uh, do you th- does everybody know who they are? I'll just give a little background agora is sells financial newsletters and um you know investing advice basically you buy like a fifty nine dollar newsletter and then they upsell you to a th- two thousand dollar a year trading service and where you you know you could do all these trading options and futures and whatnot and um they do like a billion dollars a year um And Bill Bonner founded the company like out of his kitchen table. And some at some time during the early growth of the company, he brought this guy, Mark Ford on, because Mark Ford had helped grow this other company uh, by a guy named Joel Nadell, who is also no longer with us. And, um, you know, Mark had basically retired, like at the age of 35 or something. And Bill brought him out of retirement and said, can you help me grow my company? And Mark said, okay. And they became sort of partners. And Mark was sort of the the architect of a lot of Agora's early growth. And they're both among the best copywriters in the world. So it's kind of like getting Tiger Woods to teach you how to play golf, you know? <laughs>
0: right? I could go for that.
2: I mean, it's crazy. Like, and here I am, this just kind of, you know, Sometimes you get lucky in life, and the key is you have to recognize those moments and capitalize on them, right? Because we all have good luck and bad luck, right? It's like playing cards. You just you get dealt a certain hand and you have to know how to play the hand. You're either gonna fold you're gonna fold on a lot of hands, and on other hands, you're gonna go all in, right? Mm-hmm. And so here I am. And John Finn tells me, OK, uh, Mark and Bill are going to get back to you with their critiques. This is going to be a baptism by fire. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, I was I was uh, really nervous because, you know, these things could be brutal, right? John Carlton one time was critiquing the guy's copy and he said to him, hey, do you have uh do you have the copy in front of you? He goes, Yeah, John, I got it right here on my computer screen. He goes, No, no, no. Do you have like a printout of it? A printout? Yeah. No, I don't have a printout. Well, print it out, print it out. Okay, okay. He prints it out. He goes, Okay, John, I got it. What do you, what do I do now? He goes, Take it and rip it up because it's garbage. <laughs> 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 it's almost like a contest. Who could be the most brutal <laughs> when they're uh, giving a critique, right? So here I am. And, you know, uh, Mark was kind of notorious for at times being being brutal with people. But for some reason, he wasn't with me. And like, I don't know, 20 years later, I asked him, I said, how come you didn't do that to me? He goes, because I saw the talent. I could recognize that you had potential. And I'm like, oh, cool. So here's what he did. And this is what I do to this day. He would give you a criticism sandwich. He'd start off with something positive about your copy and then he would go into all the things wrong and then he'd end with something positive, right? I like I like that. Yeah. And the great thing about him was he didn't just tell you this part's weak, he would tell you what to do about it. Right? And to this day, I mean, the way I learned how to critique copy and be a copy chief, which is what I do spend most of my time doing these days, is I learned it from Mark. Um, I learned a lot from Mark, you know, just not just copywriting, but business. I mean, the guy is like phenomenal. He's he's amazing. Um, But uh, if you want some copy lessons, one lesson I learned was never go on about one single uh, thing. For more than about a page or so. So we were writing copy for financial newsletters and very often we'd get into these macroeconomic trends and why, you know, why the price of gold is going to go up or why the market's going to tank or whatever it is. And you'd have this argument, right, which I knew how to do because I went to college and we wrote term papers, right? And when you're writing um, long form sales copy, it's like writing a term paper, basically. you get all the research together and you mark, show your arguments, and you make the argument that you're trying to make now, there are a few differences, one of which is you're going to go more emotional in in uh, sales copy than paper, right But the other issue is Mark taught me that you can't go on for too long about. certain point because you'll lose people he said a page a page and a half tops and then you got to keep shifting gears Mm -hmm. right so what you want to do is you want to say your thing and then you say "Uh, i'll tell you more about this in a moment but first let me tell you this and so you're you're constantly shifting gears to keep people from losing people right so there's a famous talk that Gene Schwartz gave and he's another one of my mentors even though I'd never met the man where he said go watch these like shoot 'em up uh Joel Silver movies. Joel Silver was a famous movie producer and still is I, I guess. Um and he was the one who did all those lethal weapon movies. Remember those? Oh yeah. yeah. And he says go to a Joel Silver movie, you'll see um There's a a, a bunch of people getting into a fight, then two minutes of dialogue. Then shit blowing up, (laughs) and two more minutes of dialogue. Then a crazy car chase, and two minutes of dialogue, right? That's how you want your copy to be, right? Don't go on in this long, you know, this isn't Henry, this isn't an Ibsen play, right? (laughs) This is like a Joel Silver movie. You want your copy to be more like a Joel Silver movie than an Ibsen play. Right? You guys follow what I'm saying? Oh, oh yeah. yeah for for sure. Right. That and so sense. That's in essence what Mark was teaching me how to do. Right? He said, yes, you want to do things in the right order to present your facts and your arguments, but you don't want to go too, off too long on something because you're just going to become background noise. Right? And then later on in my career, I learned why this is. Do you guys want to know why? They of can't. course. <laughs> the lizard brain. So there's the logical brain, there's the mammalian brain, and then there's the lizard brain. The the logical brain is, let's say you're selling a financial newsletter, right? The logical brain reason why you're buying is, well, I'll make more money and money is a medium of exchange that will allow me to purchase certain things, blah, 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 right? That's the logical brain. The mammalian brain is how other people in your life will treat me oh if i if I make all this money in the stock market, my wife will love me, I'll be a better provider, my kids my you know my neighbors will be impressed, that kind of stuff, right social status and whatnot, and then there's the lizard brain. the lizard brain is about survival and replication, and that's it. Guess who rules your actions? It's not the logical brain <laughs> right, so there's the old. Uh, saw about people buy uh, emotionally and then justify it logically after the fact mm-hmm. well that's true and your lizard brain and mammalian brain are so much quicker than your logical brain because they're more primitive there's less circuitry so you're going along doing stuff all day long and then coming up with the reason why you did it after the fact I'll give you an example Have you ever been in an argument with your significant other and you don't know how the heck it happened? (laughs) You were having this normal, pleasant conversation. And before you know it, it escalated into a fight and you can't for the life of you figure out why. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. (laughs) Never happened. (laughs) Okay. So here's what happened. Your significant other looked at you in a certain way, or maybe you looked at your significant other in a certain way, and it was perfectly innocent. But the way you looked at them, it was like the same facial expression that they're – let's say you're, you're, you're that it's the same expression like their father had when they would tell them what a worthless piece of garbage they were or some other <laughs> traumatic thing from their childhood, right? And so – imperceptibly below the level of consciousness, they're reacting to something you did, even though you didn't mean it that way at all. And when they get that triggered like that, they in kind respond to you, again, in a very subtle, almost barely perceptible way. You pick up on that, so you react to that, and it slowly escalates. And before you know it, you're in a fight.
0: Yeah, sometimes it's not even slow. Sometimes it's automatic and, and just...
2: Well, when I say slowly, what I, the better word would have been gradually. But yeah, it happens in about a minute and a half, right? <laughs> and before either of you knew what happened, you're in this fight. And so now you've got to figure out, well, why are you in this fight? And so your logical brain searches for the reason, and the reason it comes up with is she's crazy, <laughs> That's why we're in a fight. She's out of her mind. She's nuts. There was actually an experiment where a hypnotist would put somebody in a trance and then hand them an umbrella and then break the trance and go, why do you have an umbrella? And the person would say, "Uh, because it's raining. (laughs) Meanwhile, you know, they're indoors, it's not raining, but the logical mind needs to find a reason to justify.
1: How does that connect back to what you're saying about never go on about one thing for a page or something?
2: The lizard brain, your brain in general, is programmed to tune out and not pay attention to things. Because there's so many stimuli coming at you at, the, at once that if you didn't have this filter to ignore most of it, you, your, your, your brain would explode, right? <laughs> so we are programmed to not notice stuff unless there's a reason to notice it. And what's a great reason to notice something? If you're in danger. So the brain notices movement. Right? Um, I learned public speaking from a guy named Bo Eason. He is one of the most electrifying speakers ever. And one of the things he teaches you is that when you're on stage, you need to walk like a predator
0: It's funny that you mentioned that because you have done that at both of the events when we speak. In fact, you don't stay on stage either. You walk around oh, among people right. in order in order to like draw attention to yourself instead of to the stage or to you know like it forces you to pay attention.
2: Or I call on people right. right. Oh my God, if, if somebody's going to call on <laughs> me, you better pay attention right? That's great. So you know if somebody's standing behind a lectern you're they're gonna lose the audience. People are gonna tune out after like about sixty ninety seconds. They're gonna start thinking about what am i what am I gonna buy for dinner tonight from the supermarket to make and oh, yeah, just right the highly produced ones that look like an infomercial or something. The better ones the ones that are performing well, there's a lot of movement with the camera. There's a lot of cutting right from this scene to that you know this shot to that shot to that shot, right. Um, and, and when you have a written sales letter, well, you have to wait to dupl- you have to duplicate that. You have to duplicate the feeling of a Joel Silver movie. And the way you do that is by shifting the action and coming back and by telling them like we were talking about head- forehead slapping stuff.
1: Okay. And then you mentioned there's a second copywriting lesson that you learned from Mark and Bill.
2: I learned a lot from Mark and Bill. Um, so, you know, that was a big one oh, make them relive what it was like to make money if they were investing with you. Draw a picture for them. Don't just have like a list of this made 50%, this made 72%, this made... 83%. Just like keep having examples that like make them feel what it was like. You know, back in uh, such and such a time, I saw that this was happening I knew that that meant this would happen, so I invested in this, and, you know, in that nine months, the stock jumped by 87%, right? Um, And you want to have a rationale behind it. You want to make it sound inevitable. This is a system, and if you follow the system, you will get a predictable result. That's what people want in their life. They want a predictable result. And so you want to make it as sure as the sun's going to come up tomorrow, this is going to happen.
0: So, yeah, we, we talk about John Finn and how he introduced you to Bill and Mark. Uh, going chronologically now, who is the next mentor that had an
2: impact on your life? You know, there's a lot of other ones in there. There's a guy named Chip Wood, who was one of my first clients, and I still do a lot of work for the company he founded. And now his son and I are working together, and his son's like a brother to me. And uh, I learned uh, I learned a lot of stuff from Chip, like about storytelling and whatnot, using certain words, you know, good word choices versus bad word choices. And the next copywriter mentor who I had was Clayton Makepeace. And again, I met Clayton through John Finn. Uh, John called me one day and he told me there's this guy named Clayton who is making seven figures a year as a copywriter. And he was looking for junior writers. So I said, I'm in. And uh, so I started working with Clayton. And back then, they were mailing these things called magalogs. Basically, what it is, is it's a direct mail sales pitch disguised as a magazine. So you know how I said a moment earlier, don't make it look like advertising. And this is a great example of that. Uh, you didn't think you were getting an advertisement in your mailbox. You thought you were getting a magazine. So what do magazines have in them? Articles. So the Magalog would have articles in it and you'd start reading them. And after a while, it would start sneaking a sales pitch in there. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, this whole idea of advertising that doesn't look like advertising is very applicable to today's world. So let's say you're surfing the Internet. You're just going about minding your own business, surfing the web. And you see a little thing that says five foods, never to eat. And you say, oh, that's interesting. So you click on it, and then it takes you to what looks like an article or a blog, or maybe it's a video that looks like it's entertaining and informational in nature, which it is. But while it's entertaining and informing you, it's also sneaking a sales pitch in there. And before you know what happened to you, you're reaching into your wallet and taking out your credit card and buying the product. And so this is what we do. And so, this is what a Magalog was. It was a sales pitch designed as a, uh, disguised as a magazine. And when the Magalogs first came out, I looked at them and I was like, they were so dense with copy. And I said, how the heck do you write one of those? Because it seemed like such an intimidating task. I didn't know where to begin. Uh, So, Clayton said, it's simple. You start by writing as many fascination bullets as you can, just like you would do for any other. Project, right? And now some of these fascination bullets are going to be great bullets with a weak payoff. Like if you have a bullet that says, the only real way to get cellu- rid of cellulite, right? And the answer is diet and exercise, diet and <laughs> exercise, excuse me, that's a weak payoff, right? And it would be disappointing. But sometimes the payoff to the bullet is just as exciting as the bullet itself sometimes the payoff to the bullet is going to be a forehead slapper. So whenever that happens, you take that information and you actually reveal it in your promotion. So Clayton used to call these mini articles. And so we would write, you know, however many fascinations, and then we would end up with about 10 or 20 mini articles that reveal really cool stuff. And then we'd start placing them in the magalog. And so some of them would become sidebars in the magalog. And then some of them would get woven into the main run-through sales letter, right? That begins on the front cover and ends at the end with the call to action. And so the run-through sales letter, it starts out 100% information. It tells you really cool stuff. And then as you go through it, it shifts to like 50% information and 50% sales pitch. And then by the end of the letter, it's all sales pitch. And so I started doing that, and that little piece of advice basically made my career.
1: Now, you said that you actually apprenticed with Clayton, so I'm guessing you learned other things
2: from him as well. Oh, yeah. I, I learned a ton from him. Uh, he, he had such a big impact on my life. I remember the first time I ever got hang out to hang out with him in person. It was in uh, Lake Tahoe, and, and he was living large. He had the presidential suite at the hotel there. And he and his wife, Wendy, Wendy got massages and facials and all this kind of thing. Uh, and he took us all out to dinner at the nicest restaurant in town and he picked up the tab. And I was like, oh, gosh, I mean, you can really make that much money being a freelance copywriter writing for other people? And that was a big eye opener for me. I, mean, I kind of knew it intellectually, but there's a difference between knowing something intellectually versus really knowing it deep inside. You know what I mean? You actually feel it, you see it with your own eyes. So that was huge for me because it just showed me the possibilities. Another thing that was huge for me is that after I would submit my copy drafts to Clayton, I would ask him for the final copy that he handed into the client. And so what I would do is I would put them side by side. I'd have my draft and his final draft next to each other and I'd look at them and compare them and go, what did he do? And I'd say, oh, look, he changed this here. How brilliant. I never would have thought of that. And, you know, just by doing that a bunch of times, I learned a lot about how to turn good copy into great copy.
1: Can we dig into those lessons, um, what he was changing specifically and what stood out to you the most?
2: He was taking things to a higher level. Uh, he was doing what Vic Schwab, if you ever read the book, How to Write a Good Advertisement, Vic Schwab calls it getting someone to grasp the the advantage. So I I remember a specific example. We were writing a magalog for a newsletter called Bottom Line Tomorrow, which was a retirement newsletter, right? And there was an article in the publication about like, you know, part-time businesses you can start after you retire and make money, right? You could be like a little solopreneur, you know, have a nice income working part time, you know, something that people would like to do because after a while, retirement gets boring if you're not keeping yourself busy. Plus, you know, who doesn't want money, right? Extra money. The the biggest hot button, the biggest fear people have about retirement is that they're going to outlive their money. So this was a really neat article. And it said, you know, you could do different things like you can be a resume preparer, you know, where you write people's resumes for them, or you could be a mystery shopper or you could be, um I, I forget what all of them were, but, you know, for each one, I had a description of what it was. And at the end, I wrote income potential, colon, $50,000 a year, or whatever the number was for that particular thing, right? So, I had one, like I said, where it was a description of what a mystery shopper does, right? It says companies pay you to go shop at their stores and then they see how you're being treated by their sales staff and customer service and all this. And you write a little report on your customer experience and you get paid, right? And then at the bottom, it said potential income, colon, 50,000, right? So I submitted my copy to Clayton, and I got the final copy back from him that he submitted to the client. And by this point, I'd been doing it for a while with him, and my copy was really good, and he wasn't making a lot of changes. And for this particular article, he only made one change. At the end, where it said potential income, colon, 50000 Clayton added, dash, just for going shopping. And I'm like, oh, isn't that interesting? Look what he's doing. He's getting, uh, this is a technique that I now call the, you're doing X anyway, so why not get Y benefit? So an example would be, hey, you're on the treadmill exercising anyway. Why not listen to these audios on the treadmill and learn something, right? Or you're in the car anyway, so why not listen to these audios in the car and learn something? So Clayton was very good at getting people to grasp the advantage, getting people to uh, you know, get the benefit of the benefit, getting to dimensionalize the benefit. He was one of the most persuasive people I ever knew. Like He would call me up sometimes to ask me if I wanted to do something with him, and I'd be thinking, okay, the answer is going to be no, but I'm going to give him the courtesy of listening to him. He's my friend. He's my mentor. I'm going to hear him out, but the answer is No. And then he'd call me, and like, by the end of the phone, he'd have me convinced him. "Yeah, Clayton, let's do it. let's do it. and And one of the reasons he was so persuasive and good at getting people do stuff is that he was good at getting you to see the benefit of the benefit, getting to dimensionalize things. Uh, I'll give you another example. he He wrote a promotion for a health newsletter. And in there there was a statistic that said one hundred and twenty thousand people per day die from properly prescribed prescription drugs. So most copywriters, they would just write down 120,000 people per, not per day, I'm sorry, per year, die from properly prescribed prescription drugs, right? But here's what Clayton did. Instead, he opened his promotion with the following words. He said, if three jumbo jets were to crash every day, you would never set foot in an airplane again. Yet, that's how many people die every day from properly prescribed prescription drugs. Do you see how much more powerful that is than just saying 120,000 people a year die from...
0: Yeah, it contextualizes everything.
1: How do we do... As copywriters do that and have the benefit, find the benefit of the benefit and go deeper like Clayton.
2: If you have a a few years, I can teach you how to
0: (laughs) do (laughs) it. Is it, wait, was that just an invite to, to join I was invited.
1: The it's program. official. We recorded it. I was officially invited. To happen. Um.
2: You know, you just gotta ask yourself, if it's a number, how do I bring that number to life? Turn it into something people can understand. If it's a, you know, um uh some you know, I told you one of the techniques. You're doing X anyway, so why not do Y? There's a whole bunch of ways to do it. And it, you, I just learned this by being exposed to it over and over and over and over, right? You just kind of, it's like I said earlier, what, what did you guys ask me? Oh, you had to get theater into your copy, right? It's, after a while, you start to get a sense of it, right? So just read copy that makes you tingle and then stop and ask yourself, why did that just make me tingle? What's going on here? You know, after you've read all the great books and you know all the techniques, now you can go back and go. Okay, what technique was at work here? What got me to think?
1: Okay, so uh, Paris, we've talked about a handful of your mentors. I'm wondering who are your mentors today? Who are you learning from? You know, from afar or maybe in a smaller, more intimate group? What does that look like today?
2: There's a whole bunch of people we didn't talk about. We didn't talk much about Gary Benzbenga. He was a huge influence on me. Uh, Mark Ford continues to be a huge influence on me. Uh Dan Kennedy, there's a lot of marketing people who who we didn't talk about, right? Jay Abraham. Oh my gosh, I learned so much. Hey. Um Dan Kennedy, today I'm I learn a lot of stuff from uh like more tactical stuff specific to different platforms perhaps, you know. Like there's some people who are really good at Facebook or some people who are really good at YouTube or, you know, what, what have you, right? Because there are little specifics and nuances. So I learn a lot about from people like that. There's a lot of young guys now that I learn from. So it's funny. It's usually like, you know, you're the older guy and you're teaching the younger guys, but you learn a lot from the younger guy, too. I don't know. You know, it's like it's not so much about copywriting for I me mean. You know, there's other things in my life that that I'm more into now, you know? Well, it's
0: funny, you know, uh, last year when we were in Brooklyn at the event and you were there, I remember uh, Shanti Zak gave a presentation about quizzes. And uh, at the end of her presentation, she took a couple of questions. And I think you were the first one to the mic. Uh, And so, you know, always looking for new ideas. You know, you asked something uh, about using quizzes that, I, I could tell you were thinking, uh, you know, can I put this to work for one of my clients? Uh, and, and so it, it seems to me, and this is one of the things I love most about TCC IRL is we've got a lot of people there who, you know, have, have only been doing this a year or two, maybe even less. And then there are usually a few A-listers who are there and they're learning right alongside asking the same kinds of questions. And you were right there too.
2: Yeah. yeah. You got to be inquisitive. The minute you think you know it all, you're cooked. One of my favorite quotes is, uh, you know, spend a lot of time for people who are seeking the tr- with people who are seeking the truth and run like hell from people who think they're
0: it. So can we talk for a minute about how you put all of this stuff to work in your own mentoring programs? Uh, You know, we, we hinted at it that you mentor uh, several cubs and it's not, it's not, you know, a six month program, anything like that. Like it's a very long process, but how do you then, you know, help copywriters grow, you know, by putting some of this stuff to work?
2: So. It's all about not only teaching, but giving people corrective feedback. The way, you know, Bill and Mark did to me. And that's the name of the game. I I think when I came down that first time in Chinatown, I said, this is what you need. You need to read the great books and read them multiple times. You need to have a mentor to give you course correction and feedback. And you need to have a checklist. Right? Um, what do what do pilots do? What do right? When they take off and land, they have a checklist, right? What did Sully Sullenberger do when his engines gave out and he landed in the Hudson? Like one guy's his co-pilot's just going through the checklist, one thing at a time. Cool, cool, calm, collect, just running through the checklist. Surgeons do it. The story about Van Halen with the M&Ms. You know how a lot of these acts, these entertainers, they have a writer in the contract that says, "This is what we want in our dressing room." Right. Yeah. Oh, we've got to have the Perrier and the this and the that, and some of them have really outlandish demands. And Van Halen, in their contract writer, it said, "In the dr- in the room, we want uh, a big bowl of M&Ms with all the brown ones taken out." And so you look at that and you go, oh, my God, a bunch of prima donnas, right? But that's not why they did it. Here's why they did it. They said, we were the first of the really big acts to play these secondary markets that the other big acts weren't playing. So we don't just play Chicago. We play Omaha and, you know, Des Moines and places like that, right? And these places aren't used to having four trailers full of equipment come in and set up right and there are safety concerns like you you know you don't want to put your gear up and the whole stage collapses and people die right so we had every single thing outlined on what they should do and it was this massive checklist that was i don't know hundreds of pages long probably probably right and buried in the middle of that, we have the M&M clause. And the first thing we do when we get to a gig is we check for the M&Ms. If they didn't do it, we know, oh. okay, they didn't follow the checklist. We're not going on stage till we check every single thing to make sure it's right. And so I give my, you know, we have an, a checklist. Every time we learn a new thing, we add it to the checklist. And every time you write copy, you run it by the checklist. Because you have to practice correctly. You've heard this. I learned this from Mark Ford, okay? Practice makes perfect. Not true. Practice makes permanent. So if you have a lousy golf swing and you keep practicing it over and over, what's that going to do?
0: You're going to get really good at a lousy golf swing.
2: That's right. So anytime you are writing... You are either reinforcing good habits or bad habits. There's no middle ground, so that's why you want to have a checklist to reinforce the good habits
1: paris, I know we're we're out of running out of time quickly. Uh, you mentioned a handful of other mentors you didn't get to share or talk about. Is there one more that you would like to to talk about before we wrap up?
2: If we're talking strictly copywriting you know, Gary Benzavango, one of the best who's ever lived, right? And I learned a lot from him. And again, for from for years and years, I learned from afar. Every time I would hear, oh, I say, oh, you see this control? It was written by Gary Benzavango. Everybody, not just me. We would all devour it. Oh my God, Gary wrote this, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, he was like, uh, you know, he was God to us, right? the god of copywriting. And um, so I learned a lot by w- watching what he's doing and reverse engineering it. And then I became fortunate enough to meet him. I heard he was speaking at some small business break- breakfast on um, Long Island, and I ran over there. And uh, afterwards, I'm like phoning all over him <laughs> like a fanboy, right? And then after that, I got to go to the Ben Zavenga 100 which, you know, you had to sign a non-disclosure agreement and all that. But it was great stuff. And then I actually got to be friends with them. So that's one of the coolest things about this business, is you get to become friends with your heroes. Like all these people I worshipped and then I got to know, like, you know, Marty Edelston and Gary Benzavanga, you know, just, yeah, it's a great thing.
0: So, is there one big lesson that you've taken from Gary's work that uh, you've applied in your daily work?
2: Yeah. So, the biggest lesson—I'll tell you two of them—and I can say these because these weren't just these weren't part of the things in the seminar. These are things I learned before I even went to the seminar. One of them is the Gary Halbert thing: don't make it look like advertising. Um, and Gary took that to a whole other level. He was always looking for new things to masquerade his sales pitch as. Um, And the other thing I remember, this was huge, is Gary said, I don't start writing until I have seven times more stuff than I can use.
0: Think about that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a lot of work.
2: Yeah, the the game is won or lost in the research phase, right? Um, so here's what the average copywriter will do. They'll look at some stuff. They'll go, oh, great, got an idea. Let me start writing. Okay, and actually Richard Armstrong talks about this. He, Richard was like a solid journeyman copywriter for much of his career and then became one of the greatest copywriters on the planet. And he said the difference was during his journeyman years, he would do what I just said. Oh, here's an idea. Let me run with it. But what he does now is he goes, okay, there's one possibility. Let me keep going and see if I got a better one. Right? So if you follow Gary's rule where you don't start writing until you have seven times more than you can use, that gives you way higher chance of coming up with the big idea, with a great big idea, right? So I took him literally, let's say I'm going to write a 20. You remember, I told you how I keep my notes in this Microsoft Word document. Yes. The modern day equivalent of Ted Nicholas's index cards. So if I'm going to write a 20 page sales letter, what does that mean? That means I need 140 pages worth of research in that word document before I. Right. Yep. So again, does that sound like a lot of work?
0: Yeah, I think for most people, it sounds like too much work.
2: Well, guess what? Um, If you write a control that pays you royalties for 10 years, was it too much work? (laughs) I mean, I've literally written stuff. I wrote something for Bottom Line Personal. It paid my mortgage, utilities, and car payments for 10 years. Do you think it was worth it for me to go those extra seven miles?
0: Oh, yeah. Worth every minute.
2: So I do it with that. The other thing I do it with is bullets. If the promotion is going to have a hundred bullets in it, I write seven hundred and I pick out the best hundred.
0: That yeah, that's that's amazing. Seven hundred bullets. Like most right. people struggle to get to seventy or to twenty five. How do you get to
2: seven? Half hour at a time. You start. You let's say you have this five hundred page book that you need to write bullets for. You start on page one. You write as many bullets as you can from that. Then you go to page two and you do the same thing. Then you go to page three. I learned that from Ted Nicholas, by the way. Go. Don't just think in terms of general overarching benefits. Go page by page writing bullets, and you'll be able to write 700 of them. And um, an ex- another example, not from the world of copywriting that I like to use, is are you guys familiar with an album that came out in 1984 by Bruce Springsteen called Born in the USA?
0: Yes, I remember I remember owning that uh, record for a while.
2: Yeah. One of the top selling albums of all time, over 40 million of them sold. Okay. How many songs are on that album?
0: I don't remember. Was it seven?
2: There's 13 songs on that album, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, How many did he record for that album?
0: Ooh, did he? Well, well, you've been talking about doing seven times the work, so I'm going to guess something like 50.
2: He wrote, about, he wrote and recorded about 100 songs. Oh, my goodness. Wow and pick the best 13. So very often, quality comes out of quantity. The more ideas you could generate, the more of a chance that at least one of those is going to be a really great idea.
1: Wow, time to step it up, Kira. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe you don't want to be one of Paris' kids after all. It's a lot of work.
2: The first thing I do, you know, and I'm not taking on any cubs, but when I do, the first thing I do is try to talk to people Because it's basically five years of indentured servitude.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in conclusion, Paris, like you've been so generous with the information that you've shared. We just want to thank you for that and for taking the time, you you know, in, in visiting our events and sharing the things that uh, you've shared there. And we'll link to those uh, presentations that are available and on our site uh, so that people can see them if they haven't. And I just, Again, want to thank you for taking the time and being uh, so, uh, so generous with the things that you've learned from your mentors, because you're one of my mentors from afar. And uh, I really appreciate you know, the things I've been able to learn watching you.
2: And I appreciate all the hospitality you guys have extended me over the years. And I appreciate how you stepped up when I was running that um, fundraiser for my cousin, uh, who, by the way, is doing amazingly well. Um, you know, he has glioblastoma, and most people, you know, they don't live very long after they get that. His tumor is very small. It's kind of stabilized. They told him his hair would never grow back. It did. They told him he'd never drive again. He's driving again. So, uh, you know, it's a wonderful thing. And God willing, he'll uh, be with us for a long time to come. And I appreciate appreciative to everyone who donated to that i'm appreciative for you guys uh, for helping me out and you know
0: well if if we can ever do it again just let us know because we are happy to help in any way we can
1: yep with anything thank you thanks paris okay i have a couple of dozen takeaways from that but i'll just share a couple of my favorites uh the big one is that the brain notices movement. And Paris talks a lot about the lizard brain, which we're all quite familiar with. And this concept of movement is so important to me because of not only copy and creating movement and copy so that you can hold the attention of the reader. You can grab their attention and hold their attention on, especially on a long form sales page, but also how we use design to draw attention to the copy and to the headlines on a landing page. And that's something where I feel like as copywriters, we can often miss a mark on that, whether it's a designer we work with who doesn't quite nail it and we don't have the skill set to give them the advice they need, or um, we don't have a designer at all to work on it. So we have to give that we have to give that uh, feedback to our clients. But movement is so powerful and I'm glad that Paris mentioned that, especially considering at our events, Uh, Rob, you'll remember when he was on the stage speaking in Brooklyn, he was working the stage and moving around the stage. And And
0: he
1: he was all over the place, like in such a powerful way and such a great speaker to begin with. Um, But Paris said that was intentional. That movement holds attention. You don't know where he's going to go next. You don't know who he's going to call on next. And so again, whether it's movement in copy and layout design or in emails uh, or it's just the way that we're presenting ourselves in person on stage or even in a a call with multiple people on a webinar, uh, that movement is so critical.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I think we do have to be a little bit careful because I have seen sales pages in particular that included like a moving gif or something that attracts your eye away from the copy and away from the sales message. But you're right. Like when design is used Properly and gets your eye to the right place, it is an incredibly powerful tool.
1: Right. Really intentional movement in the design. And then this kind of loops back to what Paris was talking about with Joel Silver Movies. I know you're a big fan, Rob, of Joel Silver Movies. Um, but really, the importance of cutting to each scene and creating movement on a sales page, much like you would in a movie, where you can't, you don't want people to lose their interest during an hour long dialogue. So you have to cut from dialogue to action scene to the next scene of dialogue back to action scene. And so just thinking through that movie, uh, that movie parameter really helps me think about movement and copy in such a different way. That was really helpful.
0: Yeah. When Paris mentioned that, I had just the week before watched a couple of the Lethal Weapon movies. And so, yeah, it was one of those things like, yep, I, I like those movies. And he's 100% right. There's maybe two minutes go by without some kind of action and something exciting happening. Those are really good. Uh, early on, Paris mentioned that you have to recognize a particular moment or opportunity and capitalize on it. And so much of what anyone's success is is based on saying yes when everything in your brain is screaming no. We saw that when we started TCC IRL, like we had no business doing an event at that point of having launched the Copyrighter Club, but we needed a bonus, and so we leaned into that, and it just happened to be the right opportunity. That you know, my head at least, I was like, "There's no way we're going to pull this off. This is going to be a disaster." And one of the things that came out of that is that we met Paris in person, and without having done that, this interview. Never would have happened so being ready when those opportunities come your way is critically important
1: and this is probably a good place to mention that if you're a copywriter who's looking for a fantastic group of peers and or one-on-one actually more like one-on-two coaching from both of us you could consider joining the copywriter think tank mastermind which is where we do most of our personal mentoring and coaching for copywriters who are aiming to hit the 200K mark and working towards that and creating a huge impact. To find out more, just send me a short email to kira at thecopywriterclub.com and we'll chat to see if it's a fit for you. There's no hard sell. We'll just jump on a call and get to know you a little bit better.
0: So we want to thank Paris again for sharing a few of the things that he's learned from his mentors
1: and also for speaking at our first two events. Thanks again, Paris.
0: You're at the end of the show. Our intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro, which still makes me smile, was composed by copywriter David Muntner. You can learn more about programs like the Copywriter Underground and the Copywriter Accelerator by visiting thecopywriterclub.com while you're there, be sure to join our free Facebook group so you don't miss out on any of the awesome copy-related discussions that happen in the club. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.
2: Copywriters coming together To help the world write better Copy and make more money Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club